Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Test Tubes and Cauldrons, a podcast where we talk about the science behind spirituality. It's been so long, I forgot. I'm Astra. I'm Fel. And I'm Honey. And this week, we are going to continue our discussion on near-death experiences and also out-of-body experiences. But before we get into that, I will go ahead and do our What Happened on This Day. It is currently May 30th, and that marks the date of when the element Krypton was discovered in 1898. Morris William Travers, an English chemist, discovered the noble gas while working with Sir William Ramsey in London. The name derives from the Greek word for hidden. It was a fraction separated from liquefied air, which when placed in a plu- in a plucure tube, I don't know if I pronounced that correctly, connected to an induction coil and yielded a spectrum with a bright yellow line with a greener tint than the known helium line and a brilliant green line that corresponded to nothing seen before. Krypton may be chemically fairly inert, but it has important applications in lighting and photography. Sometimes I wonder if people know that Krypton is like a real element or if they just think it's some kind of crazy supernatural thing from all the marvel stuff um it's actually not marvel it's dc listen i don't know wow astra you just got us canceled i can't believe this (laughs) (laughs) i don't actually care but that is the one thing that i do know (laughs) so let's go ahead and maybe do a recap on what we talked about last time it's been quite a few weeks now talk about afterlives specifically afterlives and past lives if i remember correctly i know we talked about the idea of like reincarnation if you can prove reincarnation we talked about a couple of examples of people claiming to be reincarnated and the evidence that they put forth we talked about a couple models of afterlives so plane of existence reincarnation we talked about the history of a lot of them and we also talked about past life regression yeah right so we talked about a lot in the last episode is actually why we decided to split it up because we figured doing both the science and all of the historical stuff in one episode would be insanity unless you want to listen to a three-hour episode which i don't know that anybody does this week we are going to specifically really touch upon the science of near-death experiences and what we currently know maybe what we don't know and things that need to be done in the future to facilitate this area of study. Let's just get into it. What about near-death experiences? Let's start there. What are they? What can they tell us potentially about the afterlife? And what is the science behind them? So let's maybe start like we usually do with a definition. What is a near-death experience? Defining near-death experiences is very difficult because a lot of times it's described as being clinically dead and then kind of coming back to life. However, it is hard to like define what clinically dead is. So therefore, it's also hard to explain what NDE is, which is an acronym for near-death experience. We'll probably use them interchangeably. Interchangeably, yeah. yeah. I think also, too, there's slight difference because like not all near-death experiences seem to be when someone is clinically dead. Because there was an example I was reading about where a woman's head, she hit her head and she went unconscious, but she was never taken to the hospital or anything. So there was no way to be proven dead. But it was like an, enough trauma that she basically like, went unconscious, saw white, etc. So it's hard to prove, I guess. But it, that's generally the definition of it, I would say. The other cloudy event we talk about being clinically dead too is that there's kind of two different distinctions that people use. One is cardiac death and then the other is brain dead. So 
your heart can stop. And that means that you're dead in the sense of like your heart is stopping and no longer functioning. But then you also have being brain dead. So your heart can stop functioning. But if your brain is still processing and you still have neurons firing, you're not technically brain dead. So then it's also a clarification of which specific kind of death are we referring to? Just cardiac death or then also specifically brain dead when we see no firing and your brain actually is putting out no electronic signals. Um, so it's um, actually like it's even more granular than that when I looked it up it actually matters which country you you die in so there's actually a study I found with a list of all the different ways that you can be clinically dead in each country so oh, wow. in each country what what has to happen to your body for them to declare you dead because obviously it's important for death certificates and stuff right which makes the studies basically impossible to standardize but I thought that's really funny you know if you if you're on holiday and you you die in a country that maybe has less stringent standards, then you're kind of out of luck there. But yeah, it's actually interesting how it's a very fuzzy definition. So let me dive into some of the history of near-death experiences. Does anybody want to get into that? So basically, studies of cardiac patients now suggest that somewhere between 9 and 13% of patients with th- those conditions have near-death experiences, which is actually really high. This is something that really, really started to be studied fairly recently by someone called Raymond Moody in the 1970s. So there were reports of near-death experiences anecdotally for quite a long time, but it hadn't really been formalised scientifically until he started to investigate the phenomenology of 150 people's NDEs. And in that, he tried to standardise what exactly characterises an NDE. So there are obviously going to be cultural differences here, but some of the common ones are seeing a tunnel of light, having an out-of-body experience or floating above your body, Sometimes a feeling of joy, a feeling of kind of oneness with the universe, loss of sense of time, and also experiencing a different reality. And if these sound familiar, it's probably because they sound quite similar to religious and mystical experiences we've discussed in the past, or even drug use and things like LSD. I was also interested to see that some people reported being welcomed by deceased relatives or beings of light. Was anything missing from these definitions that's quite common to near-death experiences? Not specifically. I think it is interesting that a lot of the symptoms of a near-death experience relate quite heavily to things that people who are really spiritual will talk about, either in kind of divine experiences with God or even within like the occult community. When people go into trance, oftentimes they have a lot of kind of the same experiences, which is always an interesting connection. I thought it was quite funny when I was reading more about this. So Raymond mostly described positive near-death experiences. So when people you know, they had this kind of transcendental transcendental experience where they um, saw these beings of light and they felt very kind of one with the universe. But there are some where people actually experience like a really horrible, like they went to hell, basically. <laughs> and um, <laughs> they kind of woke up in a sort of sense of state of terror, which is interesting because like, you never really hear those being reported, but I can imagine it might give you a bit of a scare if um, you had a very vivid experience like that. Instant salvation. <laughs> these ex- characteristics were later actually condensed into a scale that was used to evaluate near-death experiences kind of quantitatively. And this is specifically called the Grayson scale, and it illustrates how NDEs are pretty consistent across cultures. One of the common criticisms of NDEs is that they might be fabricated or embellished over time. We saw this actually in the case of a past life discussion that we had in the previous episode. But a study using the Grayson scale 20 years later suggested that accounts of NDEs remain fairly consistent, which is contrary to what the authors expected. I was just going to say I was really, really surprised by that because even we know like eyewitness testimony, for example, tends to be really unreliable and that can be like a week later. So 20 years later seems pretty suspect to me. 
But I think what they mean when they say it was consistent is that their ranking on the scale was consistent 20 years later. So it's not necessarily that they remembered everything in perfect detail, although some people did have very strong recollections. It's that the scale is consistent enough that it can take two points and kind of rank them similarly, if that makes sense. It probably helps too, though, that a lot of the experiences that people have with NDEs are consistent as well. So if you have similar things happening for everybody, then it's somewhat expected that they would rank similarly on a scale that would help the scale be more quantitative in nature. But even then, like by scientific standards, I would say that scale is still very subjective and qualitative and probably not as quantitative as maybe people in the field would like to, <laughs> to think. So as well as sharing some characteristics with mystical experiences, near-death experiences can surprisingly have a long-term effect on the people who sustain them. So we kind of talked already about the potential psychological consequences of being sent to hell. But there are um, positive consequences as well. Like um, many people who have had a near-death experience report a decreased fear of death, which kind of makes sense, as well as things like heightened self-esteem. So there's one study that compared 100 people who'd had a near-death experience to 100 people who hadn't, and they on average had higher self-esteem and sort of more of an easygoing mindset. Which I thought was quite interesting. Some studies also report things later on, like auditory hallucinations. It's a very, very small study, but we found a study suggesting around 80% of people have auditory hallucinations, which is absolutely crazy. <laughs> and sometimes they're also described as more positive. So somebody might have a near-death experience, see a kind of being of light or a deceased individual, or whatever, and then continue to have hallucinations related to those experiences, which is quite interesting, although not super well backed up in the literature, it's only a, a few case studies. So this has kind of brought up the idea that maybe uh, people are experiencing a spiritual phenomenon, maybe they're, you know, they're, they've crossed the beyond and now they're able to see things that they were able to communicate in, the, um, in death. So what, what do you think about this concept? It's very interesting, like I, I've heard this actually a lot in accounts of NDEs, in which people suddenly like there was this one woman i'll link the article like an article about her below but she was actually a biologist and she had it this was the same woman i was talking about earlier got hit on the head and when she woke up she said that she could see inside people and she meant that she could like and she had a hard time describing it but she basically kind of became like energy healer is not the right word because she didn't heal people but she would like identify what was wrong with you so there was one woman who came in and she identified a tumor and later on they scanned and it was exactly in that right spot the point that she, the the space that she was and like she's got a i don't know i mean like phds don't necessarily mean anything but you know not just someone who walks off the the street and she has a like a scientific degree and she doesn't know how to explain it but there have been a lot of accounts of people who have had ndes and experience supernatural feelings i mean that's kind of the whole plot of the show the oa with jason isaacs is these people who have all had ndes and they all kind of get mystical abilities from it so it's kind of common enough that it's also like a trope in media as well well there's also like nde reports right of people having these experiences and then coming back and being able to see things like something equivalent to like an aura around people so that's like um one of those abilities that they get when they come back there have been a couple of reports of that that i've heard of over the years 
So it is interesting. Of course, being <laughs> the contrarian that I am, I'm going to talk about the potential of it being a quirk in biology because there was recently a paper written just this year, so in 2022, uncharacteristically observed about 900 seconds of EEG data from an 87-year-old patient. 900 seconds is like a lot where to usually get maybe anywhere from 10 to 100 to 100. This is quite an extensive amount of data. And they collected it from one 87-year-old patient that was admitted into a hospital that had experienced a seizure and then right after, a few seconds after. After cardiac arrest. So during this EEG, they saw an increase in something called gamma brainwave activity. Human psych is a little complicated. You have low and high, but in general for this, just like gamma brain activity. And this phenomena that they saw, they described as neuronal oscillation. Now, I'm not a neurologist, so I will quote directly from the paper since their conclusion was relatively simple. So quote, when comparing a phase amplitude coupling that's essentially how different brainwaves interact. Post-cardiac arrest, the delta, theta, and alpha modulate low gamma activity in rodents. That was a separate study. Whereas in the human brain, such modulation occurs in all gamma bands, low and high, and is mostly mediated by alpha waves, to a lesser degree by theta rhythms as well. The alpha band is thought to critically interfere in cognitive processes by inhibiting networks that are irrelevant or disruptive. Given that cross-coupling between the alpha and gamma activity is involved in cognitive processes and memory recall in healthy subjects, it's intriguing to speculate that such activity could support a last recall of life that may take place in a near-death state. Now, basically what that's saying, to put it in maybe better English terms, is that after this person was brain dead, they saw a really quick kind of shift in oscillation. As the delta alpha and theta began to die, there was a quick increase in this gamma brave wave that happened, and then it went down again as the patient actually passed. And so what they're essentially saying is that transition from alpha to gamma, based on how those two waves interact with each other in healthy subjects, could be the reason for why people experience things like this sudden People say like life, their life flashed before their eyes, right? Or seeing people that are familiar to them upon death and those kind of experiences. Now, as with every study, it's important to be a little bit critical. So there's a couple of things that might have impacted this data. The first is that it's a single test subject, so it's one person. The only other thing they really have comparing these two situations is a rodent model, which is not necessarily, it won't correlate perfectly. So one patient... Not a lot of data to correlate what they saw with. And the patient was in poor health. He had a seizure beforehand, which in and of itself can cause some brain damage. And then he was put on anti-epileptic medication prior to the cardiac arrest. So the medication could have influenced things. The cardiac arrest could have influenced things before he eventually passed away. But I still find the speculation to be kind of curious as to why perhaps people experience these kind of hallucinations during a near-death experience. Yeah, so this I think this is quite a good explanation well, good. It's it's, it's it's an interesting explanation for why somebody might experience something at the time. But what do you think about when somebody has a long-term consequence? So, for example, if they've had a near-death experience, they come back and they then begin to experience auditory hallucinations or things like you were describing, you know, seeing auras, things like that. Do you think that it's likely to be a biological symptom of what they were experiencing or are you more open to the idea of it being something else? This is something where I think we have to consider the damage that these kind of things can have on a person's brain and the actual changes that they can 
produced. So we know when people have seizures or they have extensive, something happens to their brain and it leads to permanent damage, like those things actually cause a full modulation and a reorganization of the brain and its capabilities. I think something similar might be happening with near-death experiences where they experience it. And then as a result of either the trauma or the, or the experience, there's some kind of reorganization or damage to a part of their brain that then leads to maybe these odd and not you know not normal abilities that someone might have moving forward i do think it is a biological quirk but at the same time it's hard to say one way or another especially because if it's not a noticeable damage there's really no way to kind of track what might be going on but like there are also some studies where people have talked about having like those kind of things go on continuously only to find like a tumor or something pressing up against their like parietal lobe which is causing these kind of hallucinations. So it's it's a maybe, who knows? I don't, there's not really a good answer for it. I'd be curious though, to talk to people who have this kind of thing and see how permanent it is. Like, does it last for their whole life or does it last for five years and then it goes away? Because if it's like only a short period of time before it diminishes or stops, that's a biological thing more than likely that's healing over time. But if it goes through their entire life, there might be some more to it that we just don't know about. Yeah, for the the woman that I was speaking of, hers had happened when she was very young and she's now like in her 60s. I mean, probably maybe even her 70s because the, the story that I was reading was from quite a while ago. Um, and that had happened when she was young, like late 20s, 30s. So hers was like pretty much the rest of her life. So I think there definitely are. It's probably, I don't know. I, I feel like it's, it's not all one way or the other. But yeah, I mean, I, I always say I believe that strange things happen. <laughs> And I also believe, too, like when it comes to like mystical experiences, hearing people talk about psilocybin, for example, right? Like we kind of know that they are literally taking the substance that alters their brain. But I don't think that like diminishes the experience, even if we know that it's a mind, literal mind altering. So I think NDEs are, are similar in which even if we are able to track kind of what is happening, doesn't necessarily negate from the spiritual aspect of it. I think surprisingly beliefs maybe play a very important role in NDEs because you're right. Like when you, when you talk about how, even if it is biological in nature, I think it might still be colored by someone's beliefs. So people who feel like they went to hell or like they're going to heaven, like what they recognize and then what they attribute that to is entirely dependent upon what they believe in or maybe what they've been, you know, surrounded by if they don't believe in any of that. And so I think there is kind of a combination of maybe what's happening by happening biologically and then how it's being connected to things that they already know, contacts that they're familiar with that can maybe have it be a very spiritual experience, even if it's not technically not that we know one way or another so <laughs> just thinking that even if we were to take a very strict biological view and say okay well it must be due to the biology there are many conditions neurological conditions and um, psychological conditions which we don't really understand the biology of anyway like schizophrenia for example we don't really have like a full biological mechanism for that so i think it would be really difficult to um say exactly what is going on even if we accept that it's due to um, something in the in the brain and biology. The other thing is that um, the modes of death are usually quite varied. Like we mentioned, the um, this can be cardiac death, it can be brain death, they can mean different things. Somebody could have lost consciousness for, you know, seconds, somebody could be much, much longer than that. 
it's really difficult to tie together a kind of unified biological mechanism when we're drawing from such diverse sources. And so I think um, you'd be really hard pressed to give a full explanation, but we're, we're going to try, I think, in a bit <laughs> to go through some of the potential ones. Yeah, so the phenomenology of near-death experiences appears to be influenced by the culture the patient's from, as we mentioned. But because there are so many factors that are shared cross-culturally, like the feeling of transcendence, particularly the tunnel of light, some researchers have postulated that this is actually a symptom. Like we can we can speculate that these things that they're experiencing can be explained. And so maybe let's discuss some of the potential theories that have been put forward for near-death experiences and what you think of them and how plausible you think they are. So the first one is drugs administered at the time of death. So this is assuming that somebody has been given, you know, painkillers or something along those lines, and that causes the hallucination. What do you both think? I don't know. I feel like that's kind of weak, at least of all of the explanations. I feel like that's a pretty weak one because, I mean, I I don't think doctors are in the how to giving people drugs that are known to give people visual hallucinations i guess i could make the argument that like because you're already kind of dying you're i don't know but then that that i feel like it's not a drug thing that's a brain thing i don't know but i i don't think that i'm of all of the explanations i think that's probably a weaker one i agree i think the whole drug thing is kind of a cop-out it's like an easy explanation especially because we always say that there is we we don't know how a person will react to a drug because every it's all indivi- like individualistic based on the, that person's health and and their physiology and everything so i think that's kind of a cop-out it's also one of those things where that relates specifically to kind of the common thought when we talk about NDEs, which is patients either dying in the process of dying or having experienced some kind of traumatic injury when NDEs can be experienced outside of those particular conditions. And so it's not then a matter of drugs. It's if it happens like in nature or something totally outside, like when Bell's story of the woman who hit her head, right? Like that's nothing to do with drugs. And so the same, the kind of continuity of symptoms explained by people who have NDEs, it's just not consistent with that. The only exception would be like psychoactive active drugs or any kind of drug that influences hallucinogenesis or something like that, that would maybe be the only exception. But again, it doesn't explain all NDEs. It can just maybe explain a very select number of experiences. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it would be highly unethical, but interesting to give people LSD at the moment of their death and see what happens. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I, you're right. Like that most of the drugs that are used are, um, at end of life tend to be like opiates, painkillers and even then, those don't tend to be given to people who are going to come back. So I think, yeah, you're right. It's just not consistent across patients. Maybe Astra can take this next theory. So the next one is endorphin theory, serotonin theory, and NMDA theory. Um, I've kind of rolled them all into, into one. And this is just the idea that at the moment of our death, our brain is flooded with XYZ brain chemicals. So it could be serotonin, it could be NMDA, which is related to the drug ketamine. Um, and this somehow causes the um, experiences what do you think it's possible but again i think it would have to be such an extensive flood in order for this kind of thing to occur and it's also one of those things where it is so similar across 
the board when people describe their experiences. And generally, like ketamine, for those who aren't aware, is a drug that is used to help people go under anesthesia. So it's what's used in, in that process. When people go under anesthesia, they actually usually report symptoms very different. If they do have any kind of experience like that, they're not as consistent as near-death experiences are. And so not only would it require kind of a very significant burst of all of these neurological like activators or neurotransmitters, that's what I was looking for. I don't know that it would remain so consistent. Like that theory just, I think it needs some more science to back up what happens when people are given such like an excessive amount. And also it takes a lot. Those neurotransmitters are produced by your body. And so at the time of death, this idea of an endorphin burst, it's more of like getting rid of whatever excess you have, but no more would be being produced because your body is in the process of shutting down. So is it enough to elicit these kind of experiences or is it really just kind of a quick little last burst of getting rid of whatever is out there to try kind of this last ditch attempt to help your body survive? I don't know that it's enough really to actually create these kind of experiences that people consider are so vivid and consistent across so many people. Those are my thoughts on that. It needs more scientific validation, although I don't think we're going to get the approval to just like inject people with a ton of endorphins and stuff to see what happens yeah i was looking for this and it seems like this is mostly just speculation like it's not like we've really put people in mris when they're dying and you know like looked at their brain chemistry it's pretty much just speculation from neuroscientists so i think that we can chuck this one out maybe (laughs) okay next one i think this one maybe has legs so this one is anoxia theory And the idea is that because blood flow to the brain is reduced during many near-death experiences, particularly in cardiac patients, who I mentioned earlier, have quite a high rate of near-death experiences. This was proposed as a potential mechanism for the floating feeling, the transcendent feeling people get, and also the tunnel vision. So it's quite common for people who have reduced blood flow to their brain to experience vision disturbances, which are similar to that tunnel vision. That being said, not all, all kinds of anoxia are the same. If we're kind of expecting it to be hypoxia, then wouldn't we expect the number of near-death experiences to be higher than this? What do you guys think? I think it's interesting that it's the opposite of what in the 18th century there was a military doctor, Pierre-Jean de Manchot, and he thought that it was the influx of blood to the brain that caused near-death experiences. So I think that it's interesting that, I mean, granted that is the 18th century, but I think it's kind of funny that those are the opposite. As someone who suffers from migraines and like specifically migraines with auras, there could be something with that. I know like my specific migraines have to do with like blood circulation in the brain. Uh, granted, they also like know less about migraines than we think we do <laughs> or than the general populace thinks we do. So who knows? But there could be something to that as well. Kind of similar to you, Hanny. I think this theory probably has the most legs to stand on. It is interesting though, because when someone goes into cardiac arrest, there are varying levels of intensity. And the only reason I know that is because my grandfather had um, a cardiac like attack when he was, I don't know, 70 something or whatever. I was talking to the surgeon who did some stuff on him later he was like, yes, there's varying degrees of cardiac arrest from, which is why sometimes it can be hard to detect until it's too late and so on and so forth. But what I'm getting at here is that maybe it's the severity of the arrest that leads to, and that's why we don't see like a higher percentage of dyspnoxia. It's like not enough to actually cause these kind of changes. 
But I do think that it's probably the one that has the most credence to it because kind of like fell anybody who's been like had a lack of oxygen or like you're high up hiking and you get really dizzy and you sit down and your vision's like swirling or the idea of migraines which just have to do with like the circulation of blood in the brain like that can lead to these kind of things as well people who just paint and like uh, pass out sometimes it can be due to a lack of oxygen in your blood and so all of these things lead to some similar symptoms if you will that near-death experience people have too, which means that there is some kind of support, even if it's not a direct tie between them. So I do think it has probably the most likes to stand on. It's certainly better than the previous two theories, at least in my opinion. This is my, I think my favorite one so far, although I think that there are some experiences people have described which just don't fit. Like there are some patients who have had, well, we'll talk about this later, but they've had near-death experiences without nearly dying. So is it really an near-death experience? I don't know. Or there have been, yeah, patients who have just had some kind of other thing that's unrelated to blood flow in the brain, like a seizure, for example. Um, but maybe we could we could discuss the idea that there are diverse mechanisms behind this same experience. So I think the final one I wanted to mention was temporal lobe stimulation theory. And it's interesting that you mentioned migraine spell because this was postulated as... Um, Individuals who have NDEs are more likely to have previously experienced migraines. The temporal lobes are stimulated in some kinds of migraines, and they're also stimulated in temporal lobe epilepsy, in which people have kind of deep, the same sort of deep religious experiences. So there's this idea that maybe if you stimulate this area of the brain, you will somehow experience something mystical, just because that's the nature of the biology. What do you think? Yeah, that's... That's I, I'm going to talk a little bit about my own like experiences with like kind of NDE-ish things. So it's very interesting that you say that. <laughs> I think a lot of times a lot of mystical experiences get like thrown under something to do with the temporal lobe. I feel like temporal lobe in some ways has become like a catch-all for like how to explain mystical experiences. I mean, I'm sure there's something there. The temporal lobe definitely does seem to cause a lot of interesting experiences but it probably doesn't explain the whole story yeah i look i look forward to the stories yeah i the some pro lobe theory is one where kind of like fell and based on previous episodes things that we've discussed neurology and like neurophysiology even though the temporal lobe does seem to be playing a very prominent role in these experiences, it's not the only one. Like there's also a lot of things where it's like the tempo-parietal lobe or the parietal occipital lobe has even been mentioned in a couple of studies. And so it's it's one of those things where I think we don't know enough about the crosstalk of the brain and of the different lobe regions and how they're all interconnected and working together with, you know, neurotransmitters moving between different pathways and activating things and all of that to say that yes or no, it is this one particular region that you can activate by doing, you know, something to it or whatever. There might be something there to that theory, but I don't think it's strictly a temporal lobe thing. I do like, firmly believe that it's there's some kind of crosstalk happening that we just don't understand that maybe leads to the variety of symptoms that people experience so that's my take on that so there is one final thought on this which is that it's not biological at all and obviously this is uh, quite a big one for skeptics to swallow but some doctors have even proposed this and um, the reasons are thus so basically when people have 
brain dysfunction events and they have hallucinations, for example, as a result of that, they usually give you reports which are fairly confusional. So they um, they come back from these experiences and they're kind of confused and not sure what happened and maybe maybe will give you a bit of a word salad. However, people who have had near-death experiences tend to give you quite clear, straightforward recollections of what they've experienced. They might feel kind of quite emotional about it, but often they're giving you quite quite clear recall. So this is maybe not what you'd expect from somebody who's experiencing kind of brain dysfunction. The other thing is, this is possibly even more far-fetched, but some people have an out-of-body experience when they are having a cardiac event. So they are seeing things in the room around them, which they couldn't possibly have seen if they were on the table lying down, if you see what I mean. So they're seeing things from an alternative perspective. So how are they doing that? Is it just that they internalise their information somehow before they came into the room? Did they have more perspective than they think? And the final thing was the this study that looked at real versus imagined memories. So there's a theory that imagined memories have fewer ph- phenomenological characteristics, so that they're, they're less complicated, whereas real memories are quite complicated. And when they looked at what the memories from NDEs were like, they were more consistent with real memories. So does that mean that what they're experiencing was real? What are your thoughts on this? Do you think it's a lot of conjecture? or I think it's kind of a fun thing to consider. I actually read that study that you're referring to in this episode. I found that too and I read it. Being the skeptic that I am, my thoughts on this is that so even with like the cardiac arrest and things, yes, they're in cardiac arrest, but that doesn't mean that the brain is non-functional. You're still getting input, like sensory input as to what's happening around you. And so when it, people are talking about like being able to describe like what music was playing or I'm thinking specifically there was an event described by a woman who was on operating operating table and she kind of essentially said that she had gone into cardiac arrest. They were doing an immediate surgery and she had this kind of like third person view about what was going on. She could hear what the doctors were saying and she heard the music and could like recall almost every part of the surgery. And when she went and told the um, her doctor or her surgeon later, he was like, yeah, that's basically what happened. And so those kind of things. But for me, it's more of like a you're still getting sensory input. And upon cardiac arrest, your brain is still processing. So it's just doing it kind of subconsciously in a way that maybe you aren't aware of. The kind of coming out of your body and having a third person perspective, that is unique and something I don't really have an answer for. It's interesting. I don't know that I would really say it's a purely spiritual experience. I can I can go with the combination <laughs> of spiritual and biological, um, but I do think there's multiple things that work there. I'd even argue probably when we're talking about like brain lobe crosstalk, there's probably also pathway crosstalk that we're not aware of because everything, like you said, is so complicated and all kind of works together. It is interesting though that people who have NDE experiences, it works more on like real memory versus the imagined one. But even then that fits with the theory of it being context and around what you already know, right? Because the strength of a real memory suggests they're pulling from something that they recognize or have experience before or have memory of. And especially if things like the parietal lobe are involved, which is um, engaged with kind of memory recollection, that can also influence that as well. So I think it supports a little bit of both, but it is interesting. I certainly don't think it's strictly spiritual, but I don't really necessarily think it's strictly biological as well. I'll maybe um, give you an example from somewhere, which is this was a case report featured in, it was a study which was like a collection of different near-death experiences. And basically this was a three-year-old child who had open heart surgery and his mother reports this to the journal. About a year after his operation, we were watching Children's Hospital and the child was having heart surgery. Andrew, the child, got really excited and said, I had that machine, which was a heart bypass machine. And mother says, I don't think you did. And he said, yes, I did. 
and she's asking, you know, how did you, how, how do you know you had this machine? You were asleep when you had your operation. And he says, I know I was asleep, but I could see it when I was looking down. And he describes floating up in the air above the table with a woman. And later, later on, he sees a picture of her mother, so his grandmother, who had passed away. She's never met him. And he says, that's her. That's the lady. Oh Spooky! <laughs> Children are so scary, man. <laughs> so this, this is the kind of thing I mean when I say people have experiences of things where they have, um, they, you know, they couldn't have known because they were asleep. How do you explain that? I mean, this is a child, so really they could have got that information around them. And people don't give children as much credit uh, as, as I think they deserve for how much they can interpret from their surroundings. So I still think it's kind of spooky. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a little spooky. <laughs> Bill, do you have any thoughts? It's interesting because I feel like there's been like a push, I think, in... I mean, this has kind of happened because only recently has the US really kind of greenlit some psilocybin research. And I happen to be in the area where that research is happening. So I'm like, hey, you need anybody? Hit me up. But there's been a push to do comparative studies between NDEs and people who have taken psychedelics of some kind, whether that's psilocybin or DMT. To my knowledge, I'm not sure if there's ever been like a study, like a something that is uh, <laughs> like a well done study comparing the two. But I know that there's been a push because people have noted similarities between them. Honestly, I think we'll I I think we'll probably know more about NDEs if we study psychedelics because I think there are similar things that are happening in the brain, but also like we're it's 2022 man and we still like no jack shit about the brain. So, it can be a little bit of both spiritual and, you know, why can't something physical also be spiritual? I think it'd be really fun to study the pathways related to specific psychedelics because if we can do like imaging studies to trace the breakdown of a psychedelic kind of through your body and then how it gets into the brain and then trace it kind of through there, that'll give us a lot of insight into what pathways or mechanisms are maybe involved in these kind of things, which could then allow for more specific NDE research and kind of ruling out certain things or seeing if there's crosstalk between stuff. I agree with you. I think that looking into psychedelics, because we do see a lot of similar experiences, could offer a lot of insight into potential regulation in our brain and how it works. But yeah, it's so funny. Like, we don't know anything about the brain. (laughs) It honestly sucks. It makes everything really hard to, like, parse through and consider. Okay, Belle, story time. Let's hear it. Okay, story time. (laughs) Okay, so now we're talking about some cases i guess of any personal experiences with ndes i will also preface this by saying i was never clinically dead so i don't really consider this like an nde in the classical sense like nde ish but basically what happened i was nine years old and i was homeschooled so i was kind of like roaming around all the time and i had pretty large property to roam around in and i climbed a tree and i was wearing a jacket in which the zipper teeth at the bottom were stuck together so they would not come apart they couldn't be ripped apart i was also very small at nine they just wouldn't come undone so i climbed a tree and i was sitting in the tree reading and i went to jump off the tree as i did it was not that high up but the back of the jacket got caught on another little branch that had been poking up next thing i knew i am dangling from the tree being choked by my jacket that will not come unzipped I was like this for a while. I do remember screaming, um, so I could at least breathe, but it was 
very laborious because I was using my neck muscles essentially to lift up any jaw here. So eventually I kind of lost the ability to make a sound. And I was just remember like kind of starting to go in and out. I actually remember my poor dog, my border collie dog was trying to get car. Like he came to like, look at me and was like very concerned. I was like running to try to get cars to like stop, I guess. And like kept trying to like help. But obviously he he didn't really know how he tried. And as I'm like fading in and out, I like remember, and which is why this idea of migraines maybe being connected is interesting. Is I remember seeing like an auric like figure. So if you've ever had migraine auras, they're kind of like rainbowy, kind of translucent and like they kind of look like glitches almost if glitches were more organic in nature. And I just remember seeing this like angel figure that was auric rainbowy and like fading to a bunch of different things i remember it like being an angel too because wings the body itself was imperceptible but i do remember there being wings i don't remember if i heard it wasn't exactly its voice but in my brain suddenly i felt something say look up and i looked up and i was able to the jacket slid off my chin and i landed on the ground and was able to (laughs) not die that was my experience and it's what's funny too is we were talking about this a little while quite a while back actually in the discord if anyone had any ndes and any sort of experiences positive or negative i actually my experience was actually very neutral like i don't remember feeling anything but fear and relief i was very christian at the time too which is why also the angel imagery makes sense so it definitely deepened like my belief in spiritual helpers but actually this experience was overall kind of neutral for me that I I really forget (laughs) that it happens and it wasn't until we were talking about it again that I was like oh yeah huh that did happen bro you Um, were saved by a literal angel (laughs) how is that neutral that's it that's incredible like that's it was seriously insane and it's not like I forget that it happens I guess it's just like I think also because I'm no longer a part of that faith that it kind of lost some meaning for me it also happened like what 16 17 years ago a lot had happened in the years prior but yeah I, I remember that and like um so I do have a question for you because yes. you know how we're going through the list of um mm-hmm. potential mechanisms so you mentioned that you um had pressure on your neck so maybe was, anoxia yeah yeah so it's definitely suffocation yeah did you experience tunnel vision at all yes because I remember things kind of like going in and out and having that kind of yeah tunnel vision experience interestingly enough the like auric angel figure that i saw was when i was like viewing um like i I remember i do remember like because it was the fall and i remember the like fallen leaves the grayish kind of fall background seeing this angel figure like in the backdrop or the backdrop of my uh barns that were there so it was interesting that it happened not while i was like out but while I was like kind of perceiving the world around me. That's so cool. (laughs) Not cool for you at the time. Yeah. (laughs) Cool to hear you talk about it, like consider. It was funny because I remember going to Sunday school the following week and like I I was I was injured from the experience not in any like debilitating way but like because I was thrashing about my like back and like the it caught my shirt too so it's just like my bare back beating against the back of a tree so I actually my back was probably bruised so I remember having like some mobility issues for like a year and a half more but I remember going to Sunday school the following week and they were like what did everyone do during the week and I was like I was rescued by an angel <laughs> <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I love that 
Oh my goodness. That's wild. Does anybody else have any experiences? I don't, but... No, no. Not really ones that can't be explained by the circumstances. I guess this is maybe a bit dark, but I overdosed a Benadryl once and I, I saw like spiders crawling over the surface of the world and I like fully did not psychologically recover from that for a while because I was convinced the spiders were still there. Just I just couldn't see them. That was, that was that's nasty. like a I feel like that's a thing I've heard with Benadryl a lot that like you get like really weird dark oftentimes like spider insect imagery yeah you will go to the nightwear nightwear realm so just don't don't do it like <laughs> it, yeah. it is it is a hellscape <laughs> yeah is Benadryl some kind of like secret psychoactive that we just don't know about? people don't know like there's actually like weird like a ton of accounts of people tripping on Benadryl essentially but like from what I remember there they're not necessarily found like any strong psychoactive it might have something to do with the fact that maybe they the benadryl like makes you really tired and like that might because i know sometimes when people are really tired weird things happen to your brain so i don't I know wonder, it's probably a dosage issue i would imagine if you take two, more than the allowed dose which is like i don't know what 20 megs or something like that because like i know there were some reports of people taking really high amounts like because there was this whole um benadryl challenge on tiktok I don't remember what year it was, where people were taking, like, incessantly high, like, dosages, and they were reporting having hallucinations. So it's probably a dosage thing, but still, that's really weird. It's also weird that they're all, like, scary. Yeah. Okay, so the final thing that we wanted to talk about was um, the potential of inducing near-death experiences for spiritual purposes. And by this, I do not mean, you know, harming yourself in any way. Please do not listen to this podcast and harm yourself. Um, but what I mean is um, inducing the experience independent of have, of um, of experiencing harm. And so this argument comes from the idea that the Elysian mysteries were potentially related to death. So they were related an idea of reincarnation. And it also seems to appear in some Buddhist philosophy as well. Specifically, there's a study by Van Gordon looked at several Buddhist practitioners, I think 12 what they termed as advanced Buddhist meditators. They looked at the phenomenology of their mystical experiences, which are related to death in terms of what's written in the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And they kind of tried to quantify them on this Grayson scale we mentioned. So they argued that the meditative transcendental experiences that you have are actually near-death experiences. Same things happening in the brain. You're just not dying. There are several issues with this study, mostly that the authors themselves are Buddhist meditation teachers. So maybe that would make them good people to design the study. Maybe it would make them really biased. I'll leave that up to you. And obviously there are there are quite limited ways to investigate this. This is purely phenomenological. It was three years, which is pretty good, but it's, you know, it's very, very small scale. So what do, what do you think of this idea that when you're having a transcendental experience, it's actually a near-death experience? That's actually kind of like a common idea seen in certain ancient Greek mystery cults. And we mentioned the Eleusinian mysteries. I mean, again, those are mysteries. So like, we don't necessarily know a lot about them, but we know specifically Pythagoras, uh, our boy who we can't go an entire any episode <laughs> without talking about him. A lot of his stuff was like, because he talked about like, I hesitate to say astral projection because that's putting a word onto them that they wouldn't have used. But his version of that was basically entering a near death state. You know, he specifically talked about being able to walk into Hades and to walk out. And so there's like kind of reading between the lines. You can see him basically entering a death-like state in order to enter a a higher spiritual realm i mean even if you look at 
we in our astral projection episode we talked about how a lot of that was considered to be near death experiences or inducing a death like state and the ancient greeks like in ancient greek necromancy ancient greek and roman necromancy necromancy was did not make a distinction between sleep and a death-like state because sleep and death-like states were actually considered one and the same uh, which is interesting when you think about dreams in that case but yeah there there was a, a heavy emphasis in ancient mediterranean magic of having for like more trance-like experiences to enter this like near death or death-like or sleep state it's also not an uncommon thing um to think of even within the occult community so Aaron Leach, who is a ceremonial magician who typically dabbles a bit more in angelic magic, he wrote a book called Secrets of the Magical Grimoire, which is all about kind of it's like a guidebook on Solomonic magic. Not perfect, but it's a good it's a good book. In one of the chapters from the beginning of the book, he talks about he uses the word shaman, which I don't particularly like. But he talks about this commonality between people who have acted as kind of prophets within the Bible and then also leaders within maybe ATRs that have to undergo these near-death experiences, essentially, where they die and then come back to life to be granted particular abilities by the spirits. And so you had that idea as well. We see it happen in the Bible with Moses and a couple of other prophets who undergo these transformative kind of near-death experiences that then give them these connections with God that allow them to petition God on behalf of a people. And so that, that's a very common thing that we see kind of throughout the magical and occult community. It's hardly an unusual idea, but it's interesting to consider how they were using meditation to induce that kind of experience whereas in these cases it's usually some kind of drug or, or, or something of that nature or just really intense trance work i mean then of course you have our boy swedenborg you know he entered a death-like experience to see these angels and they were just like all right here's the deal <laughs> here's the deal what heaven is he like advocated against that's pretty heavily definitely a mystical experience and it also doesn't appear to be that Swedenborg was like actually dying that it was sort of something that happened during some sort of mystic rite yeah the thing that's interesting about these ones mentioned in this specific study is that they mention um, having specific characteristics that relate to things written in the book of the dead so they mentioned that their um, meditation experiences are usually associated with certain ele elements so that might be the element of fire, for example, and one would find one's body uh, identifying with that element and, and physically experiencing things um, that your body obviously is not physically experiencing at the time. So I thought that was interesting how it's kind of like a, it's definitely very culturally influenced, but it seems to be the same flavour across lots and lots of different spiritual traditions. Okay. Last minute thoughts? I mean, I guess let us know, anyone in our Discord, if you feel comfortable, let us know if you have had NDE or NDE-ish, as I call mine. <laughs> uh, any experiences was positive, negative, neutral. We can come discuss the validity of, not validity, but the practice of inducing a death-like experience in order to achieve some sort of spiritual whatever. Yeah. Let us know if you want us to hear talk, uh, talk more about that. Let us to hear us talk more. Yep. <laughs> can you tell i've been talking to taurus all day in the heat <laughs> that's it i don't really have any other thoughts i don't know it's one of those things where i'm a bit of both minds it's probably some spiritual like some kind of spiritual nature also biologic in nature i think there's a combination of things happening here as i usually think i feel like we're, we're broken record with how many times i say that but yeah if you have 
had an NDE, then please let us know in the Discord. That'd be really fun to talk um, about you with you about your experience. And if not, no worries. Please don't intentionally go have one for the sake of having one. But if it does happen, do let us know <laughs> when you think about it. I would like to explore further this idea that maybe these are all sort of part of the same spectrum, like psilocybin experiences and near-death experiences and um, maybe even fasting and it, i just think there's something interesting there that um, i would like to hear your thoughts on and potentially discord thoughts on so yeah please let us know all right well we will close out this episode thank you so much for listening again i hope you enjoyed last week's episode with Salon han sorry i couldn't be there but i was on vacation <laughs> If you haven't joined our Discord yet, be sure to. We have a link in the episode description of all of our episodes. And if you're not already, you can follow us on Instagram to get updates on things we'll be posting this upcoming week. I mean, for every episode, really. It's been a long time since I've done this outro, so I gotta remember if I'm forgetting anything. But I think it was all. So have a great day. We will see you next week. And yeah. Bye, everybody. Bye.